0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're in Colossians. Uh, We took a break from, we finished uh, Lamentations a couple weeks ago and I wanted to take a break before diving into Ezekiel. So I thought, you know, let's go and get back into the New Testament and take a look at the book of Colossians. And so last week we started the first part of Colossians chapter 1, didn't finish it. We're going to do that this morning. And uh, we did already go through the first, I believe it was the first 18 verses of Colossians. But what we're going to do this morning, I want to back up back to about verse 15 where Paul is talking about Jesus. And this is some really, really foundational things that Paul is teaching to the Colossians. Of course, they had a lot of, there's a lot of false teaching going on in Coloss And, uh, Paul is really wanting to equip the believers there to instruct them and just to just to equip them to be able to stand against any false teaching. Um, you know, that's one thing that I think is really uh, needful in the church today is uh, a very good understanding of biblical doctrine, a good understanding of, of what God reveals to us about himself in the Bible because there is a lot of uh, misnomers, there's a lot of false teaching that is even creeping up today in the world around us. And so I think it's very uh, uh, applicable for us today. But going back to verse 15 where Paul is talking about Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. And, of course, that is speaking to Christ's deity, and we talked about that last week. The firstborn over all creation. Now, Jesus was not first uh, created chronologically, but this is referring to being first in rank, in fact, Jesus could not have been created because he is the creator, as we see in the next part of verse 15. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. And there are uh, supernatural beings, there are angels, there are demons, Satan, Israel, etc., However, these were all, according to the Bible, these were all created through or by Jesus Christ. And so Paul continues, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And we kind of... Parked on that for a few moments last week and talked about that, but as I was kind of reviewing and refreshing and preparing for this morning, I came across Dr. Henry Morris's uh, explanation or of that word that in Him all things consist, and I want to read this to you. It says the Greek word translated consist is sunesteno, from which we get sustain. The things created by Christ are now being sustained or conserved or held together by Him. He is upholding all things by the word of His power. In Him we live and move and have our being. The most basic of all scientific principles is implied in these two verses. That is, the principle of conservation of mass and energy for all things. According to this principle, nothing is now being either created or annihilated, only conserved, as far as quantity is concerned. One state of matter can be changed to another, example, liquid to solid. One type of energy can be converted to another, example, electrical energy to light energy. And under some conditions, matter and energy can be interchanged, example, nuclear fission. But the total quantity of mass and energy is always conserved. This law, also called the first law of thermodynamics, is the best-proved law of science. But science cannot tell us why it is true. The reason that nothing is now being created is that Christ created all things in the past. The reason why nothing is now being annihilated is that all things are now being sustained by him. If it were not so, the binding energy of the atom, which holds its structure together, would collapse, and the whole universe would disintegrate into chaos. You know, when you when you think about that, that that's some pretty heavy stuff. And uh, you know, he says here that nothing new is created, and I understand what he's saying. But I, I was wondering, well, what about when when uh, Jesus fed the multitudes? You know, did he create the 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 bread and the fish? To, to feed the, all those people, or did he just change what was existing? So, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that. Just something I was thinking about. But last week we talked about Coulomb's Law, the law that like particles, like charged particles, you know, a plus and a plus, that they they repel each other, and, and a negative and a positive charged particle they attract. Well, you know, that sounds great, and it works great, and we can we can experiment with it in the lab. You can take two magnets, and you can prove it to yourself. However, in the atom, that law doesn't apply because you have positively charged protons that are stuck together in in the nucleus of an atom. And what is holding them together? Nobody knows except for, well, I believe it's Jesus Christ. His sustaining power is what's keeping this universe together. And so, you know, when you start really, really thinking about it, it can really have ramifications. Think about this. In Jesus, all things are held together. so in other words, you know he is sustaining all of the atoms in the universe, everything that's created. He is sustaining by the word of his power and of course we know I think it's in second Peter it says that one day you know all these elements are going to be destroyed with fervent heat, and I believe that's when Christ is going to say that's it time it's that's it and and everything is going to just come apart literally. But if you think about it that even now all things are sustained by Christ. Think about the atoms in the fists of the Roman soldier who was pummeling Jesus the night before he was crucified. You know, they blindfolded him and then they would they sucker punched him basically and said, "Hey, who hit you?" Think about the fact that Jesus, who sustains all the atoms in the universe, he was sustaining the atoms in the hand of that fist allowing that fist to batter his body. Think about the spikes that pierced his wrists and his feet, that he, he held them together by the word of his power. He allowed them to pierce his skin and the, and the thorns and the crown that, that pierced his scalp. Those things, when you start thinking about the ramifications and the great love of Jesus Christ, to, to, to allow that to happen, and he did that for you and I on the cross. He took that pain and that punishment and that suffering for your and my sins. Continuing on here, Paul says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he never died again. You you might think, well, what about Lazarus? You know, Jesus brought Lazarus back to life, but, you know, Lazarus isn't alive today. Eventually, Lazarus died again, the widow of Nain's son in the Old Testament he eventually died. Jairus' daughter eventually died. You know, in Matthew's gospel, it says when the crucifixion took place, there was a great earthquake and tombs opened up. Now, this is really bizarre. Tombs opened up, and there were bodies of the saints that came back to life that were walking around Jerusalem. And Matthew's the only one that records it, and he doesn't go into a whole lot of details. Like, huh? They had to make a movie out of that. They probably have, but, anyways. Um, but think about that. Those people eventually died too. You see, Jesus is the firstborn from out from among the dead, raised in immortality, never to die again. And so, he, in that sense, he's the firstborn of the dead. And so, now we get to verse 19, is where we left off and where we're picking it up this morning. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. So, you know, I've got to ask ourselves what is our image of god the father you know we've got this image if you look at how god you know directed the the children of israel to wipe out the amalekites and wipe out all these other people and and uh, you know all the bloodshed and the sacrifices and and you know you can kind of get this impression that god's this you know uh, he's this angry being that you know uh, is just ready to pounce on any kind of sin and, and and sometimes we get this skewed sense of of who the father is Jesus didn't come to appease an angry father what does the bible teach about the father well the bible teaches in 1st timothy 6:16 6, that the father dwells in unapproachable light it says whom no man has seen or can see and no flesh can be in his presence and this same god He's the one who loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross for us. He's the one who made a way for you and I to approach Him. Knowing that He's holy and we're not and that no flesh can survive in His presence, He sent His Son, Jesus, so that we could see Him in Jesus. And so, it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, that word fullness, pleroma. That was, Paul's not using that by mistake or just, you know, a word that he picked out of thin air. That was a term that was being used by some of the false teaching that was going on in Colossians at the time. Uh, the Gnostics used that term, pleroma, to sum up all of the spiritual world all the beings of the spiritual world, they called that the pleroma. That, that was the realm of the, of the spirit world. And the spirit world was made up of beings known as aeons. And to the Gnostic in those days, Jesus was just an intermediary aeon who was sent from this this, this cloud of, of supernatural beings, this pleroma, that he was just someone who came from that to, uh, to enlighten humanity. To give them uh, to help them recover lost knowledge of the divine origins in humanity. You know, you start thinking about it, you start it you know, it goes man, that sounds like new age stuff. It really does, right? Well, you know, it's it might be new age stuff, but it's the same old lie that's been going on for thousands of years. And so Paul uses this word, this term pleroma, to teach that all of the divine attributes of the Father, all that that they it, it all resides. In Jesus Christ, the Son, permanently, it dwells in him. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes this, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. So Jesus, fully God, and yet for our sakes, became fully man for us. And so Paul continues here, And by him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. What does he mean by him to reconcile all things to himself? That word reconcile, what does it mean? It means to cause, to conform to a standard, to be adjusted to a specified standard. A number of years ago when our kids were younger, um, Teresa and I, we took the kids and we went on a vacation to Michigan. I have a brother. I'm originally from California, but I have a brother and a sister-in-law that live in Michigan. And uh, so we went out there to spend a, a few days with them, had a lot of fun. On the last day of the trip, we decided to go antique shopping. And uh, we went into this an, these different antique shops. And, and uh, I'm not really a big antiquer, but I thought, you know, it would be really cool to get this, an old-fashioned Extinguisher. I don't know, I always like these old-fashioned brass extinguishers. I thought they looked so cool on our fireplace. And so we were looking around, and, and boy, I found one that was, I don't know, 80 bucks or something. But it looked really, really good. And uh, so I'm like, man, that's. I think I'm going to get it. This is the last day of our trip, right? And uh, so I plunk my uh, Visa card down on the, on the counter. And uh, to my shock and horror, my credit card was declined. And... Uh, unknowingly, I had exceeded my credit limit. At that time, we didn't have a very big credit limit, so it wasn't a, I mean, it seemed like, well, it was a big deal for us. But according to my calculations, however, I still had available credit. I mean, I, I knew in the back of my head, I knew how much money was available. And yet, according to the bank, there was a, there was a disconnect there. They said, you have this much money, which wasn't enough, and I thought I had plenty of money. And so, I need to reckon, I needed to reconcile my account with the bank's account. That, that kind of gives you. And you guys probably do it every month. If you're if you're the, the person that writes checks in your family, you know, you say every once in a while you got to reconcile your checking account because you know you think you have so much in the money uh, so much in the checking account. And the bank says you have this much. Well, you got you got to come to a terms of an of an agreement. That's what reconciling is, according to God's standard all mankind are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, it doesn't matter if you believe that uh, or even if you agree with it. God sets the standard. And His standard is that all mankind has fallen short. You know, in my case, the bank set the standard and I needed to come into conformity to the bank standard. And so, for you and I, There has to be a reconciling where I come into conformity, where you come into conformity to God's standard of holiness. And what Paul is teaching is that God the Father provided the reconciliation coming to that agreement through Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And not only that, But Paul in 2 Corinthians writes this, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You know, when I think back to that time in Michigan, if I had only known that there was an imbalance, that I was out of out of kilter with the bank's accounting, yeah, I could've I could have prepared, I could have I could've done things. But here I am. Fortunately it was the last day of the trip, but here I'm out there. I didn't I never carried much cash with me and my credit card. I couldn't use my credit card, so I was like, I gotta somehow we gotta drive all the way back to Minnesota. You know, and and uh, you know, it worked out. We're here. <laughs> we didn't get stranded in Minnesota, in Michigan, but we made it back. But you know, here I am standing at the counter, and maybe you've had that experience where you've written a check and it's come back returned. You know that feeling. It's a sinking feeling, especially when you think you have money and you find out you don't. Uh, you know, today I think we've been blessed with that overdraft protection. I think that's a false sense of security. Because um, I remember many times, not many times, but I remember off and on as a little kid coming home, and my mom is just weeping and crying and, and i 'm like what 's going on? Somebody died? No, our check bounced you know and, and uh, that happened a few times to my parents. Well, it turned out they never reconciled the checkbook. they just wrote checks it's i don 't know they never reconciled it seriously, but anyways, um, in my case, on my vacation, I was shocked. I was embarrassed, very embarrassed. I went into a panic. I mean, it's a little late to find out that I'm out of conformity to the bank's reckoning on my, my account balance. If I had only known in advance, I could have planned accordingly. You know, you think about that. There are people who right now think that they have a right standing with God, who, who are going on that assumption that everything's cool, and someday they're going to stand before God and God's going to say, hey, come on in. You know what the Bible says? It says that there's some who are not going to be in conformity to God's standard, but for them it's going to be too late then. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so, you and I, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. We have the opportunity, the blessing, to be able to go to someone and say, hey, you know what? This is what God's standard is. And allow them to come to the realization before it's too late. I need to get right with God. So how do you... And how do I do that? I've tried cold, in-your-face evangelism. I don't know if you've ever tried that before. There's one time I got really fired up. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to start sharing the gospel. And I remember walking around Silver Lake going up to unsuspecting people and just sat down with them and just started sharing the gospel. And, you know, people are polite here in Minnesota. They, they don't get real rude, but you could tell they felt rude. Kind of like, oh, this guy's really strange. <laughs> you know? And uh, it, it didn't really go over too well. I tried it downtown once. It didn't go over too well, too well either. But, you know, the other day, uh, it was pretty interesting. Uh, there was a guy shoveling dirt across the street. There, my, my neighbor across the street was trying to get rid of some dirt. And... Uh, this guy just shows up in his pickup truck, pickup truck, and he starts shoveling dirt from my neighbor's driveway. So I walked over to him. I said, are you doing him a favor, or is he doing you a favor? What's going on? And uh, he basically just said, no, this, he's got an ad on Craigslist, and he's trying to get rid of dirt, which I didn't even have any clue about that. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So we were just talking. Well, this guy, every once in a while, he would drop a little word, and it clicked with him. I'm like, man, this guy's a believer. Because he kept just saying, he kept, every time <clears throat> I would say something, he would bring it back to Christianity or bring it back to Jesus somehow, you know. And so I finally said, oh, man, you must be a believer in the Lord. He's like, yeah. And I go, oh, so am I. So we talked a little bit, and then we talked about politics, and then I went back across the street. Um <clears throat> but you know what was cool about that? Was that he just dropped the seed and just waited to see if I would respond. And I think sometimes that's the way you and I can share the gospel with those around us. You don't have to get in their face and, you know, you know, read the Ten Commandments to them and tell them they're... I mean, you can do that. I'm not saying don't do that. But I think sometimes all you need to do is just plant a seed and see if they respond. Because if God's been working in their heart, and usually when a person comes to the Lord, God has been working. The Holy Spirit's been convicting them. You're not just the first person in creation to come up to them. <clears throat> the lord's been working on their hearts. And you might be that one person that comes up and you just say something bring, you know, you bring the conversation steer it back to Jesus somehow just, you know, through whatever you say. And you might be that one catalyst where a person goes, "Man," and they just start talking to you and you get the opportunity to share the gospel with them. I think that's that's the best way to do that. Of course, that means that we have to be prayerfully aware of our surroundings. I was sharing with Brad the other day, you know, I I, uh, <clears throat> I know some people have had some really great spiritual conversations on airplanes. I don't. And it's not, that I, I, it's not that I can't. I have had some couple conversations with people on airplanes before. But I don't like to talk on the airplane. I, I just want to sit in my seat and get to my destination. I'm not a real, you know, let's talk and jabber all day. I just want to sit there and get, you know, get it over with and get, get done and stuff. But you see, sometimes that means that you and I need to take time and be willing to talk with someone. Be willing, you know. Sometimes I just don't want to share the gospel because I'm too busy. I don't want to. I don't want to stop what I'm doing, you know. Because what if the guy wants to respond? You know, I don't think that. But I mean, you know, what if he does? You know, I'm, oh, sorry, I only had a minute to share with so you. I got to go. You know, you got to. You got to be willing to. If you want to share the ministry, in the word of reconciliation which Christ has given to us, you have to be willing to spend time with people. You have to be prepared reading your scriptures. You have to be prayed up spiritually. You know, asking the Lord, please give me opportunities this day to share your word with somebody. And then you're ready for it. Back in verse 19, Paul writes, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's kind of a weird verse. I'm you know, trying to understand it here. What does he mean, things in on earth and things in heaven? Well, back in verse 16, we already found out, Paul says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And so the Father provided reconciliation for all things on Earth, but also in Heaven. Now, that, I don't know; it's something I'm really not too sure about, as far as what Paul is referring to. Whenever I come into something like this, it's like you know what? I could speculate; we could we could come up with our own new doctrine about you know Christ dying on the cross for these spiritual people, but you know, you can always go back to the Scripture and allow Scripture to be your 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 commentary. What we know from Jude. That angels, that there are angels that rebelled against God, and they're reserved in chains for everlasting judgment. The Bible says that. We also know in Hebrews that God does not give aid to angels, but He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And so, you know, sometimes we come across something I don't really understand what Paul's saying, but I know what Scripture says here, and so Paul must be referring to something else. That's all I can give you. I don't know more than that, but. This is what the scripture says. End of verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Back in verse 14, Paul says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Here he says we also have made peace with God through the blood of his cross. I don't know if you ever heard that term about someone making peace with God. I can tell you that they're wrong because you and I, we don't make peace with God. We don't get reconciled with God. God's the one that's made peace with us through Jesus Christ. God's the one that's provided that. God's the one that's initiated. He's the one who's provided and made reconciliation possible through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. So it's not something that you and I do. Verse 21. And you who were once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Alienated in your mind by wicked works. I like what this one paraphrased translation says. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated by him by your evil thoughts and actions. David Guzik, he's another Calvary Chapel pastor, he says this. Belonging to the race of Adam, we are born alienated from God. Then as individuals, we each choose to accept and embrace that in alienation with our wicked works. In other words, we're born in sin. You don't sin. Uh, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. There's a big difference there. We're born in sin. But as we grow, we, we start acting in that. So we start doing, committing those sins. And so this is what Paul is saying. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Jesus physically suffered and died as a man on the cross in order to, look at verse 22, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I mean, that's that, That's wonderful. Holy, that means to be sacred or set apart. Blameless, means to be without spot or blemish, as in a sacrifice, or faultless. Above reproach, that means you're unaccused. You can't be blamed for anything. And this is what Christ's sacrifice on the cross has done for you and I. If you think about it, positionally or judicially, if you've been born again, you right now are holy in the sight of God. You are without blame. You are spotless, judicially or positionally. In other words, if, if you were to die today, you would go to heaven because of Christ's sacrifice, if you're a born-again believer in, in Jesus. You, go to, you, you would go to heaven because he sees perfection when he looks at you because he sees the blood of Christ shed for your sins. That's positionally. But practically, holiness for you and I is a direction. It's a direction that we're all heading towards. The Bible talks about being changed from glory to glory. As you and I, you know, as we as we listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to us, as we as we obey the Lord, as we as we as we start maturing in our faith, we're becoming more and more Christ-like. We're becoming more and more to that place but then there's the catch there verse 23 if do not you, you hate if <laughs> if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I Paul became a minister see i knew it there'd be a catch there right it's interesting in the greek that word if can also be translated since or seeing that in other words since you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast or seeing that you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel continuing in the faith that mean that means persevering abiding in the faith jesus said in john 8:23 if you abide in my word you're my disciples indeed hebrews 3:14 says for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. What, what's the beginning of our confidence? I know my be- beginning of my confidence is, is that I could not earn my righteousness. I was a sinner lost and I needed Jesus Christ's righteousness for me. And, and so Jesus Christ was my confidence In the beginning. And so Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, if we hold on to that confidence, steadfast to the end, grounded, what does it mean to be grounded? It means to lay the foundation or to establish. And the Bible teaches that there can be no other foundation than Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of your and my faith. It all stems from his sacrifice for you and I. And then steadfast, firm, Immovable, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. I, I like what Paul says. He's, he's there in uh, Miletus and he's on his way to Jerusalem and he asks for the uh, leaders of the church of Ephesus to come and meet him at Miletus. And so as he's there, Paul is speaking with the elders, thinking it's probably not the last time I'm going to see him. And so he's imparting some stuff to them. At the end of that, he says, and see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. But listen to what he says, but none of these things move me. Those things don't move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul made this determination. He knew that chains and tribulations were heading his way, but he says, these things aren't going to move me. I think you and I need to get to that point where we say, you know what, no matter what happens, none of these things are going to move me. I might be going through a dark time. I might have difficulties and tribulations, but this is not going to make me move from my faith. And I'll be honest with you. I was talking with someone in the back there. Uh, We were talking about things happening. We just have this sense, and if you talk to just about anybody today, we have this sense that there's a lot of bad stuff that's going to be happening, either in our economy or politically or just in our world in general. It just seems like there's a lot of heaviness. And you don't even have to be a spiritual person. Born again believer, reading your Bible, you talk to people that aren't saved, and they they have this impending sense of something heavy is going to be happening soon, and I think life as you and I know it, it's not going to be as you and I know it. I think it's going to become difficult. Those people that are in those Middle Eastern countries, you know, they they have got their shops, they've got their synagogues or churches or whatever, um, and, and they've got their lives. You know, I was reading about some some of these people that they had. Businesses and they were successful under these other presidents, and then this, uh, whatever they call that revolution, the October spring, spring, <laughs> I knew mean, some season. Uh, you know, the, the you know what I'm talking about, where the Islamists come through and they wipe out the like they took Mubarak out, and then the Muslim Brotherhood, what was it called? The Arab Spring, there you go. I was thinking about it. All of a sudden, practically overnight. These people that have their shops and they've got their they go to, they have their daily lives as they know it. All of a sudden, life is not as they know it. And they're not making money, and that's not even the worst part. They're fearing for their lives. They're thinking, you know, I, I grew up in this town. My grandparents, my ancestors lived here, but I can't live here anymore because the Muslims won't let me. Overnight, life can change, and so I think for you and I, we need to get to this point like Paul, where he says, you know what? none of these things are going to move me because you're going to be tested on that at some point in your life. Will those things move me? And so Paul says, you know, be steadfast, immovable from that hope, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. But that does lead to a question. What if someone claims they were born again, but they have in fact not abided in the faith? They have moved away from Christ as the foundation of their faith. They have moved away from the hope of the gospel. What about them? I mean, it does say if, you know, what if they don't? Well, first of all, God truly knows their heart. I I don't know their hearts. God knows their heart. But it's interesting because Paul, or excuse me, John, in his letter, 1 John 2.19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, he's not talking about they left our church, but they they walked away from the faith. They walked away from the fellowship of the believers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so I think uh, continuance really is the test of reality. You you have a real foundation, you have a real faith in Christ, you're going to hang in there. Christ, you know, was like, I think Luke was mentioning, you know, that the work that Christ is doing, you know, he's going he's gonna to see it to completion in you. If you're truly a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit's going to be working in your life. So what happens if someone claims that they are born again, but there's absolutely no fruit in their lives to back up their claim? I've had situations where I've talked to people, that, you know, I I've, I've thought they were not even Christian. I start witnessing to them, they go, hey, 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 don't, man, i I'm a believer. You are? You look at their life and you go, Wow. There's no fruit. And whatever fruit there is, it stinks. There's flies on it. I mean, it's rotten. I can't in good conscience give people like that words of comfort that they're holy, blameless, and above reproach in God's sight. I, I can't. I'm not gonna I am not i can not say, Well, you're you're not a believer, you're going you lost your I can't say that, because I don't know. God knows but I can't in good conscience give them words of comfort and say, ah, don't worry about it, you know, you'll make it in the end. It's a word of warning, I think, for each of us. Verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill The Word of God. Listen to, think about what Paul says here. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. I have to be honest with you folks. I'm not there. (laughs) I don't rejoice in my sufferings for you folks. Uh, I'm just being honest. I'm not there yet. I even have a hard time rejoicing in my sufferings for my wife. Honey, will you do this for me? Oh, man. You know, it's the grumble and the complaint. Of course, then she pulls out the verse, you know, uh, don't grumble or complain. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, double whammy, you know. I struggle with that. I don't think I'm the only person. I think we all struggle with that. Well, this is what Paul says. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And if you think about it, he didn't even know the Colossians personally. He's writing a letter. He had never visited that. It wasn't a church he started. Paul has the love of Christ in him. Paul's not saying here that he is taking on Christ's suffering. In other words, I'm I'm suffering for Christ because it was lacking what he did on the cross. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul isn't uh, completing what Christ didn't complete because we know from the Bible that Jesus suffered alone on the cross. We know that Jesus suffered completely on the cross to the point of death. We know that he drank that cup of suffering that the Father gave him and he drank it down to the very last drop. We also know that Jesus suffered once and for all. Remember he cried out, "It's finished. It's done." There's no more suffering that he has to do. And so Paul isn't saying, "Hey, you know, I'm just making up for what Christ didn't, you know, didn't complete in his suffering." That's not what Paul is saying. But I I think this paraphrased version gives the idea of what Paul means. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. What I think Paul is, he's just looking at that sacrifice that Christ gave. I mean, Paul was formerly a murderer, a blasphemer. I mean, he he was a hater of Jesus. And God in His grace and His mercy took Paul and transformed his life. And, you know, he has been forgiven much, loves much. And I think Paul is just so overwhelmed by Christ's sacrifice for him. And he has such a profound understanding of Christ's grace because he experienced almost grace to the fullest. That he's like, man, anything that I suffer for Christ, I'm, I'm willing to do it. I want to suffer for Christ. That's why I think he writes in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 24 again. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body which is the church That word mystery, that was something, what it means, it's, it was something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was there, but it wasn't out in the open in the Old Testament, but it has now been revealed to the church. In Ephesians 3.6, Paul writes that that mystery was that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. In other words, Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He also came for the Gentiles. In fact, he died for the sins of the entire world. And that there was going to be one body made up of Jew and Gentile who come to faith in Christ Jesus. The church, the body of Christ, made up of both Jew and Gentile. That was in Ephesians 3. But here, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You think about that, you know. For a Jewish person, here's... The, 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 the temple and all its splendor and all its holiness and and you couldn't just like, you know, like you and I would come into church today and, and we just come in kind of casually. We're just kind of dressed, you know, fairly casually. We'll grab a cup of coffee, come sit down, hang out, you know, real relaxing. That's not how a Jew worship God. A Jew, you know, they had to go through all these sacrifices. They had to make sure everything was spotless and everything was just perfect. And then just not anybody could go into God's presence, just the high priest, only once a year. So they have this impression, you know, God is there and he's holy in everything. And you and I, what's been revealed, what the mystery is, is that Christ is now indwelling you and I in our hearts, in the believer's heart, that indwelling Permanent presence of God. Verse 28. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul's ministry was to warn them. Warning is connected with repentance. It deals with our conduct. It addresses primarily matters of the heart. He's warning them about their conduct, warning them about issues of their heart, and and, and usually it means that they need to repent. But he's also teaching, and that is connected with faith, and that's dealing with doctrine, addressing primarily matters of the intellect. You know, get a good understanding of who Christ is. Know the truth so that when you see an error, you can spot it and go, that that ain't the truth, because I know what the truth is. So Paul's doing both in his ministry. He's warning people, admonishing people, but he's also instructing. Paul was very zealous that every Colossian believer was perfect, and that word perfect means complete, complete in Christ, in Christ, not perfect in Paul. Paul's not trying to create a following. You know, I want you guys to be just like me. I want you to, you know, Paul's not doing that. He's trying to prepare everyone to be perfect in Christ. And that should be every ministry around it. It's not to become, make people become Calvary Chapelites or Donites or whatever you want to call it. It's not that at all. It's to make you more like Christ. It's to bring you to a place where you are perfect and complete in Christ. Verse 29, to, 29, to this end. I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me mightily. Paul recognized that God's powerful strength was in him. In fact, he relied on that, the Holy Spirit, that, that power of, of that, that moved Paul, that, that, that motivated Paul, and that made Paul's ministry effective was God's power. It wasn't Paul's power, it was God's power. But Paul didn't just sit back, Paul also labored and he strived. And he suffered for the Colossians. Paul spent time, you know. How many letters do we read where he says, I pray day and night for you? Paul was a prayer warrior, getting on his knees. Now, some of you that might be suffering. I gotta pray for <laughs> I get a, I gotta pray for them for five minutes. You know, that, that maybe that's your amount of suffering. Paul suffered for people. Paul prayed for them. Paul warned them. Paul got involved in their lives. Paul told the truth to them in love. You know, that's what the body of Christ is really supposed to be. You know, we're, we are to labor and strive for one another. We're to warn one another. We're to teach one another. We're to set an example for one another. That, that's really what being the body of Christ is. Is being involved in one another's lives, and one of the things I think is kind of a hard thing for us today is is just our culture. I mean, you know, face it, we all back in the day, you know, a husband, maybe a, maybe a man worked, and, and the and the mother stayed home, and you know, it was a different life. But now everybody's working because of the economy. You just just to get by, everybody's pretty much. It's 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 pretty rare when when you don't have both husband and wife working in a home. It's, it's, it's more, more the rarity than, than, the, than the norm. And so people's lives are busy. And we've got all these things that are around us that either entertain us or things that we're involved with or what. And I think sometimes we can compartmentalize our Christianity. You know, I, I, I come to church on Sunday, I, I do my thing, and then the rest of the week I do my other thing. And then I maybe I'll come to Wednesday and be get back into that thing and do that. And, and Paul's life was just, he calls himself a drink offering, poured out. Uh, that means everything of Paul was just poured out for ministry, ministering to people. It wasn't the ministry, it was ministering to people. That's what the ministry is, is people. And so Paul was involved in people's lives. And I think that's a good, a good thing for you and I to consider this morning is, you know, Do we want to be used by God the way Paul was used? Ministered, you know, ministering to one another. I'll have to tell you, it's going to take time. It's going to take time away from your plans. It's not always going to be easy. I can be the first to attest that. It's not easy always. It's rewarding, though. And it has an eternal reward, of course, when we stand before the Father and. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the goal that I'm shooting for. I know that's a goal that you're shooting for too. So just a, a good reminder this morning. Why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would just, uh, just strengthen our foundation in you, Father. Lord, I pray that if we've uh, been moved away, Lord, maybe something has happened that's just really thrown us off. Lord, I pray that we would get back to the, to the center, get back to you, Father, and that we would cling to the rock of our salvation. Father, we thank you that you are uh, in our midst. Lord, we thank you that you've promised to never leave us, to never forsake us. And Father, I pray that we would never leave you, Lord, that we would never walk away from you or desert you, Father. We thank you, Lord, and as times get tougher, Lord, as times get more and more difficult, Father, maybe as we get more and more distracted in our lives, whatever it is, Father, I pray, Lord God, that we would be firm and immovable and steadfast in our faith. And I thank you for each person here, Lord. I pray that you would equip them, prepare them, and use them, Lord, to minister in these last days as we see the end approaching, Father. Lord, that we can warn those, we can, we can encourage, we can instruct those, Lord, who maybe don't realize that they need reconciliation. And so, Father, I pray that you would just strengthen us, give us the boldness for the ministry and the word of reconciliation. And we know that we can't do any of this without your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit and empower us to, to go in the power that you provide, Father, not in our own strength. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.